When you're safe in your own home, you don't pay attention to every bump in the night. You tell yourself, ah, it's just a tree branch brushing up against a window. The wind rustling the blinds. Or my personal favorite, it's the house settling. But what if, just what if, tonight of all nights, it's much more than a wooden limb dancing on a windowpane? What if you are, in fact, being watched? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. Melbourne, Florida, police detective Dennis Nichols was having a normal night on April 20, 1988. Your typical calls, theft, domestic violence, maybe a brawl at the bar, some drunken idiot brandishing a gun. Just southeast of Orlando, Melbourne was a fairly big city even back then, about 50,000 residents in 1988. But then a call comes in. Respond to the River Oaks condominium complex for a fire. It was a ripper, but the fire department had put it out already. The assumption was arson, but a second crime had been exposed. So Nichols heads out to investigate. By the time he arrives close to midnight, the fire is smoldering. Nichols is summoned inside the apartment, the bedroom to be exact, to look at a body. In the master bedroom of the unit, where the fire was mostly contained, Nichols stares down at a female. Her body burned black. She's nude. Her hands are bound behind her back with shoelaces. The body has been burned beyond recognition, which means she is going to be hard to identify. She's believed to be 41-year-old Patricia Miller, a nurse who lives in the condo unit by herself. 1988 was a time in America when sexual assault and violent crime against women was at a peak in this country. I don't want to scare anyone with the stories we tell on Crossing the Line. That's not my goal here. I don't want anyone to walk away from the show thinking they are at high risk of being the victim of a violent crime. The truth is you are far, far safer today than you were in this country 25, 30 years ago. Violent crime in 1988 had increased 5.5% that year from the year before, with murders rising to a whopping 20,675 deaths nationwide, according to the FBI's statistics. Nowadays, we're talking about 16,000 and change. That's quite a big difference. Those numbers mean squat if a crime happens to you or someone you love. I understand that. Let's get back to 1988 when movies like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Coming to America, Cocktail, and A Fish Called Wanda were released. And the most famous person in the country was, drumroll, Roseanne Barr. And I just threw up in my mouth. (laughs) What law enforcement knew about the Melbourne murder at this stage was not much. But things, they pick up very quickly once Detective Nichols starts to dig in. It appeared someone had snuck into Patricia's home as there was no forced entry anyone could find right away. They then bound and raped Patricia and then violently murdered her before setting the place on fire to destroy evidence. But the fire was a stupid move on the part of the murderer because all it did was draw everyone to Patricia's condo unit and the quicker authorities are on a crime scene, 
the more successful the investigation is likely to be. Look, I enjoy talking about stupid, or shall I say, truly narcissistic murderers because they always get caught in the end. It might take some time, but they almost never, ever get away. As Detective Nichols begins his investigation, he develops a theory about the likely cause of death after Patricia's autopsy. Blunt force trauma from multiple blows to Patricia's head, as well as a failed attempt to strangle her. This fractured her hyoid bone, a bone just under the jaw that supports the voice box and tongue. It's the only floating bone in the body. And when it's broken, it's a telltale sign of strangulation. It appeared her body had been set on fire after her death, and the fire originated in the bed where her body lay. Her bed, I'll note, was completely torched down to nothing, basically. The medical examiner determined that Patricia was also attacked with a hammer and a terry cloth belt. The kind used, you know, to tie a bathrobe was what was used to strangle her. Another interesting fact about the case was that there were several items missing from Patricia's apartment. Her nurse's uniform, which she had presumably been wearing that day, was not found inside her room. There was also a screen from one window missing, which was likely how the suspect got in, yet nobody could locate the screen. And Patricia's terry cloth robe, found in her room, was missing its belt. Nichols begins looking for anyone Patricia knew who could have been responsible. Investigation 101. I mean, we know this stuff. Patricia, though, kept a very small circle, and it appeared then that everyone she was close with had an alibi. But as Nichols looked next at the usual suspects, you know, the local yokel known potential guys, he comes across a name, James Philip Barnes, a then 26-year-old local scumbag who lived near the condo complex. Barnes was a piggish-looking man, bald as a bowling ball with chubby cheeks, bumpy skin like an alligator, an oversized, bulky nose, and thin lips. This man belonged in Florida, let me just tell you that. (laughs) He had done some time for repeated burglary of occupied dwellings along with grand theft. Occupied dwellings, that's important here. Barnes was known as a strange guy, dangerous, and a menace. He dealt drugs, had trouble keeping down jobs, and had a sort of fetish for going into homes with people inside, walking around, watching them, and then robbing them. In one case, teenage Barnes broke into a neighbor's house, robbed them, and then lit the room on fire to cover up the crime. Even as a child, he committed several acts of arson and would kill and maim animals. So as suspects go, Detective Nichols knew Barnes was at the top of that list. Previous behavior is a great predictor of future behavior and you can almost always expect it to escalate. This escalation shows that he enjoyed dangerous stimulation, the thrill of being caught at any time. Because criminals like this are seeking a thrill, doing the same old thing doesn't do it for them anymore after a while. Barnes would have to ratchet up the risky nature of his crimes each time. Escalation, not de-escalation. We say that all the time on Crossing the Line. Am I right, Catherine? Yep, absolutely. It just gets worse and worse. That's why those little crimes, breaking and entering, peeping Tom, they escalate. It's a sign of worse behavior to come. So that's Catherine, as you know or don't know, my producer. 
Because Patricia had been raped prior to her murder, the other major piece of evidence found during an autopsy was semen. So they had the killer's DNA, in other words. Nichols contacted Barnes to feel him out and see how he might react to an interview, or at least to giving a statement. Get the guy on record, asking where he was and what he was doing that night, so if nothing else, it could rule him out and move on. Who knows? Maybe he even had an alibi. You check one scumbag off the list, you move on to the next. Barnes, surprisingly, agreed to come in. There's the narcissist. Throughout questioning, Barnes denies being involved. He says he was out of town. But to Nichols' surprise, Barnes says, you know what? I'll be more than willing to give you a DNA sample for testing. That's wild to me, but my thought goes to it's 1988. He's probably thinking, like, what are you going to do with this? You can't really identify me using a DNA sample. Yeah, DNA wasn't then what it is now. And right. definitely the reporting of how much it solves crimes was non-existent then. Right. It wasn't like, well, you just made this an open and shut case. Right. Nichols is like, all right. He takes the sample, tells Barnes he'll be in touch, and send it off for testing. Let's take a break right here, and we'll be right back. Detective Nichols sent out James Philip Barnes' DNA sample in 1988, just about two weeks after Patricia Miller was violently raped and murdered. He had a hot suspect in Barnes. Detectives sometimes get a feeling for a suspect, and Nichols knew Barnes was lying about where he was that night. Beyond that, the guy hit every mark of a potential killer. The lab came back and said it didn't have the capacity to test the semen found at the crime scene to Barnes's DNA. Remember, this is 1988. As we said, DNA testing capabilities, the only available methods at the time, were inadequate to produce a detailed match. Right. Back then, it was like they could tell if someone was a secretor or a non-secretor, right? It has something to do with blood typing. It's not until really the 90s when it... DNA profiling really becomes a thing. Right, right. They could narrow down, but they couldn't pinpoint. Yeah. It had only been four years since British geneticist Alec Jeffries had discovered that DNA profiles could be used to resolve questions of paternity and potentially solve crimes. Most people don't realize that in any particular case, you only have so much available DNA to use. When a sample is used, you can't use it again. The lab didn't want to blow any opportunity down the road by running out of crime scene DNA because they tried to test for a match too early in an investigation. Nichols also had Barnes's DNA on file, and why risk using up what they had left of that and take a chance Barnes would not give up a DNA sample again without a warrant? So Nichols decides to wait it out, and man, oh man, does he ever, for nine years. By 1997, however, DNA testing capabilities had made tremendous strides and it was far easier to compare sperm and blood and saliva to a suspect. So the DNA comparison request in Patricia's case was resubmitted and lo and behold, no surprise to Nichols, it came back a match to James Barnes. Barnes had raped and murdered Patricia Miller. There was no doubt in anyone's mind who worked on this case, but now science had proven it. The question became, would they even be able to find Barnes? I mean, the guy was a known crack cocaine dealer. He ran frequently with sex workers and other street people. 
This guy did not take any shit from anybody. He would become very violent when he thought someone had slighted him or stolen from him. Who knew where he'd gone off to? Turns out finding him was as easy as popping the guy's name into law enforcement computers. Barnes had been arrested and convicted of another grand theft, a firearms violation, and get this, first degree murder. Remember, what do we say, Catherine? You follow the evidence. No. (laughs) It always escalates. You got it. (laughs) These guys, these guys, they escalate. They don't de-escalate. If they're not caught, they escalate their crimes. So a guy like Barnes, he's committing arsons, he's committing rapes, he's committed murders, and here he is now, grand theft and another murder. Yep, here we go. This guy is just a wrecking ball. He would just keep ruining people's lives if he's out on the street. So thank God Nichols finds him in prison. Barnes had gotten married around 1995 and had been trying to reconcile with his wife, Linda, after she figured out he was a drug-dealing, violent scumbag, and she decided to divorce him. He had promised to come clean, and she took him back. But when she later found a bunch of drugs in the house and confronted him about it, he decided to, in his words, put her in a sleeper hold. He strangled his wife to death and shoved her body into a closet in their home. At one point, When Barnes was at home with his wife's body still in the closet, a knock came at the door. It was Linda's brother and sister-in-law and mother looking for her. Within an hour, police were surrounding the house and demanded to search it. Barnes ultimately tried to explain the murder away by saying it was an accident. He put the sleeper chokehold on her, supposedly to calm her down during a heated argument. And, oh yeah, to my utter shock and surprise, she just died. Yeah, you know, just like that. This guy. Later, in an interview with police, he would admit to actually picking her up off the ground in that chokehold as Linda was shaking violently, trying to get away. He went on to explain that she had urinated on herself, which he knew then meant she had likely died. Sounds like maybe he has experience choking someone to death. He definitely, well, I'll just say yes. Mm. So here we have a guy who tried to strangle Patricia Miller, couldn't do it, and almost 10 years later now has mastered this murder technique. I say this a lot. Psychopaths evolve in the worst ways imaginable. They get comfortable taking lives and get better at it every time. Now faced with the facts, Barnes said he'd admit to Linda's murder, but only on one condition. Barnes demands that the father of Linda's children be in the room when he recounts the murder. So he can tell Linda's children in detail how she died. That's so disgusting and insidious and horrible. But for this guy, it's power and control. It's re-victimizing his victims. This is who James Barnes is. Nichols and another investigator took off to the prison to interview Barnes about Patricia's rape and murder, knowing they had his DNA, which placed him at the crime scene. So do you think they're going to place him like good cop, bad cop here? I don't think so. I mean, I think they go there. They know he's did it. They have his DNA. I think you just, you you drop the hammer down on him and you say, look, dude, we got you. Mm -hmm. You know, by this time, Barnes refused to speak to them. As long as he didn't open his mouth, Barnes knew they'd have to investigate, put a case together, take it to the DA and then charge him. 
DNA or no DNA, it would take years. Nichols hoped Barnes would save everyone the time and effort and make it admission, but no chance. The good news for the community and for the investigators was that Barnes was not going to be able to hurt anyone else, ever. You get life in Florida, you'd better settle into your new digs because you are not going anywhere. Nichols tried repeatedly to convince Barnes to confess, or at least offer up more evidence. Barnes knew, however, that the factors in Patricia's case were far more damning than the straightforward murder of his wife. Not only had he broken into someone's home and laid in wait for her, but there would be additional consequences for the rape and desecration of a corpse. He knew that if he admitted to Patricia's murder, or if they proved their case in court, the possibility of a death sentence loomed over him. So he kept quiet. I consider Mr. Barnes to be a bona fide psychopath, hitting many of the markers on the Dr. Robert Hare psychopathy checklist. This was really interesting. When I searched for this, it's literally a checklist. You give yourself like a score, like one, two, three. How likely is this answer to be true for you? Or how true is this specific characteristic for you? And go ahead and search for that, guys. You might find something interesting about a boss. An ex, like there was at least one friend who I was like, yep, an absolute psychopath. You can do it for like, to to be more serious, there's people you're worried about in your life that may harm you or your family. Do the checklist on them and then you'll know, keep them the hell away from you and your family. Mm -hmm. But like any typical psychopath, Barnes could not contain himself for long. He had to speak about the matter of Patricia Miller. There was something in it for him, as there generally is for all these guys. It's part of the psychopathy some vicious killers inherently espouse, and it resides in a subsection of personality disorders I have just started to study. Clinically, it's called narcissistic immunity. If you've known a true narcissist, you're going to relate to this. Some claim it's the childlike quality of the narcissist, and most of them display this adolescent behavior. They engage in magical thinking. You see, the bottom line here is that they feel omnipotent, that there is truly nothing in this world they cannot do or achieve if they wanted to. They also believe they're omniscient. In other words, there is nothing in this world that they do not know, and that knowledge of everything resides in them. I mean, we've all known a person like that, right? We've all known somebody who thinks they know everything. Most important is that they believe, truly believe, that they will always get away with whatever it is they are doing. It's a grandiose way of thinking true. But more than that, it's that boundless love of self. The immunity part of it is multi-pronged. But in short, it is that they feel, I mean really feel, that they are immune from the consequences of their actions. I say all of that because what James Barnes does next might seem baffling or even stupid. But when you understand narcissistic immunity, it becomes very clear. In 2005, Barnes writes several letters to the assistant state's attorney and confesses to Patricia Miller's murder. Then, in a sort of homemade recorded interview, he does the same. He claims he's converted to Islam in prison and was confessing as an act of atonement. But it's all nothing more than a carefully thought out and designed psychopathic strategy. That's all this is. 
The basis of the recorded interview is strange in and of itself, but again shows Barnes's need to control. He sat down with another inmate who questioned him, on videotape, mind you, about Patricia's rape and murder. He begins to explain not only what he did, but why he did it. If only Patricia would have been more responsive to his demands, she could have lived. If only she would have allowed him to do what he wanted. You and I have heard this absurd song before, and we get the picture. This is so typical of a psychopath where whatever they did, even if they murder someone, it's that person's fault. It's someone else's fault. It's all about what happened to poor them. It's textbook sexual sadism. It's, yeah, it's it's like, look, if only she would have listened to me. If only she would have done yeah. this. If only she didn't do this. If only she didn't steal this. It's what abusers do. Why did you make me hit you? Boom. Boom. Whenever a killer confesses to a murder, details are important, of course. As an investigator, you need to hear certain details that were never publicly released so you can gauge accuracy of the confession. We've all seen enough episodes of a cop show to know this is important within the scope of admission. In his confession tape, which I searched through Helen Highwater for, and I just could not get you, so I'm sorry for that. Barnes said he selected Patricia's condo specifically. You see, he'd met her previously and she had, quote, humiliated him. So he made the choice to kill her out of revenge, to teach her a lesson. I take the word of a psychopathic killer with a grain of salt. It's likely he made this up or that the slight was simply perceived by him. He described the crimes he committed against Patricia Miller as, quote, very ugly, very brutal, very messy, end quote. Before entering her condo, he had stripped naked, placing his clothing into a bag he left outside. Then he pushed in that window screen, sneaking into her unit. He says he went there with the intent to both rape and kill her. Think about that. Here's this piece of shit walking the earth, just itching to go into a home, rape, and then kill a woman because he didn't like something she said or did. Once inside the unit, he had armed himself with a kitchen knife and sneakily watched Patricia go about her normal activities for a short period of time. Then he confronts her, wrestles her into her bedroom before vaginally raping her. But that wasn't enough. He binds her hands behind her back and he binds her feet with those shoelaces. And then he anally rapes her. Afterward, he took the belt from her robe and proceeded to try to strangle her with it. Realizing it would not be as easy as it might have seemed, he finally resorted to bashing her skull in with a hammer. Heavy stuff, I realize, but there's no sense in downplaying what monsters in our midst do. It's important to tell victims' stories. So let's take a break here, and when we return, you'll find out whether Barnes was held accountable for his crimes. After viciously murdering Patricia Miller in her own home, Barnes had grabbed her bank card along with anything he touched inside the condo unit. He lit Patricia's bed on fire and left the condo before disposing of all the items. After Barnes' admissions in those letters and during his videotaped prison confession, he is, of course, indicted. The charges are as follows. First-degree murder, burglary of a dwelling with an assault or battery, two counts of sexual battery by use or threat of a deadly weapon, and arson. And in Florida, 
Those charges, my good people, are enough for you to face death. Barnes then waives his right to counsel. And like any tried and true narcissist, he decides he will represent himself. And for this, the state provides counsel on standby for the lunatics who decide to do this. So Barnes has a lawyer there for resource if needed. Barnes enters an open plea of guilty and waives a sentencing jury. So when you say that, you mean the judge is the one who decides his sentence, right? So it's not coming from a jury? Yep, exactly. And this is a quote from Barnes versus State. The trial court ordered a pre-sentence investigation, PCI report, and also ordered that Barnes's school records be obtained. In addition, the court ordered a doctor a board-certified forensic psychologist to provide a psychological evaluation, end quote. You see, Barnes thought that coming forward and taking responsibility for the murder, effectively solving the case and helping law enforcement would save him from the gallows. That was his narcissistic plan. He's got to be the hero, of course. He refused to offer any mitigating evidence during the sentencing phase, which a lot of these guys do. Like, no... I didn't do it. You know, I didn't mean to do it. I was abused. I'm not of sound mind. You know, it's that old argument to get out of what he had done. Excuses, excuses, excuses. Then on December 13th, 2007, yes, 10 years after DNA had proven that Barnes committed the crimes, the court did not act on anything else besides the letter of the law. And so James Philip Barnes was sentenced to death for the murder and You know, if he somehow survives the execution, he is given life for the remaining charges. Barnes, of course, appeals. That is just astonishing to me. He pleads guilty. He decides to defend himself. He decides not to have a jury decide his sentence. And then he appeals? Maybe that's his whole plan. It just makes no sense. Maybe that's the prison legal plan. That you get from your boys down the down the road, yeah. you know, <laughs> just like push off the death penalty by appealing. He also files a petition for appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, this is a narcissist just wasting everybody's time. That's what he's doing. Time and money. He's denied. He loses his original appeal on September 17th, 2013. One thing James Barnes has always maintained is, quote, there are other crimes out there that I have committed that I have not and held accountable for, end quote. That might be one of the only totally true statements this guy has ever spoken. That's what I'll say. Barnes ultimately admits to documentary filmmaker Werner Herzog in his miniseries called On Death Row that he also murdered a woman named Brenda Fletcher. Her decomposed body had been found in a water-filled drainage ditch along the northbound on-ramp along I-95 of Cocoa, Florida. She was last in contact with family in October 1990 and found on April 2nd, 1991. There's a point in the documentary where Barnes describes how Brenda took his wallet. That pissed him off, and you can see the anger and resentment toward her on his face. He calls her a crack addict. He demeans her, even in death. And this is from a man who claimed earlier in the film that he is remorseful. He goes on to admit to Herzog, that he also killed 14-year-old Chester Wetmore from Bradenton, Florida, who had been missing since May 26, 1986. 
Barnes said he met Chester and helped him hide out because the boy had run away from home. He also demeans Chester, calling him a drug addict. The kid broke into Barnes's car, he claims, adding, quote, I was very, very upset, end quote. So he killed him, burying his body near a lake. I, I've said this over and over about so many different people. It seems redundant to me to say it, but James Barnes is a psychopath. He's textbook. There's no remorse. There's zero empathy. He tries to come across as a guy who now cares because he supposedly found religion. But make no mistake, he is the personification of evil. Today, Barnes awaits execution, which for me cannot come soon enough. I reached out to him via email. Yes, you can email some inmates on death row. That's a whole nother episode. And have yet to hear anything from him. Do I suspect I will? Yes, I do. And when that day comes, I'll update this episode right here. Back next week with a new case. Be safe. Be aware. Subscribe to the show, please, and leave reviews. Give the number of stars you feel it deserves, especially if it's a five. See you next week. Sources for today's episode come from On Death Row, documentary miniseries produced and directed by Werner Herzog, Florida's Commission of Capital Cases website, HealthyPlace.com, Narcissistic Immunity by Sam Vaknin, Barnes v. State Appeal, in the Supreme Court of Florida, James Barnes v. State of Florida, and special thanks to Dr. Michelle Bosco for her conversations with Phelps on narcissistic immunity. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.